0: Brand strategy is an interesting one because it sort of fits somewhere in between business strategy and marketing strategy, but it can sort of move around a bit, whereas your marketing strategy typically will be subservient to your business strategy.
1: Hello and welcome to Brandtuned, a podcast on brand management that covers trademarks and IP as they're intrinsic to brand equity. I'm your host, Shireen Smith, author of Brandtuned. Writing this led to Byron Sharp's evidence based research stressing distinctiveness over differentiation, which I largely agree with, though not totally. Hence our tagline Sharp branding. My guest today is JP Kaslin, Chief Executive of Rouser an international strategic consultancy specializing in global business and marketing strategy. He is a columnist for Marketing Week and contributor to the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising's Effectiveness Works. He used to be known as JP Hansen and has now taken his wife's name. JP, welcome to the Brandtune podcast.
0: Thank you, Shireen. Thank you very much for having me.
1: So tell us a bit more about your background. I gather you were a lawyer too at one stage. So I'm dying to hear more about your background.
0: Yes, so I have a bit of an unorthodox background for strategists, I suppose. Uh, the very first thing I studied at university way back when was marketing, and then I eventually also went to law school. Uh, so I did work uh, for a bit for a law firm doing uh, primarily M&As, and acquisitions, and corporate finance and corporate governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then eventually I realized that, that th- what I really found interesting, and probably as well where my sort of talent lie. To, that, to, to the degree that one can say such a thing, was within strategy mm-hmm. and governance. Uh, so eventually that led me to do more strategic work, uh, ended up at Rouser, and I've been at Rouser now for going on six years. Um, and actually it's a bit of a, a I suppose, a, a bomb to some people. Is I'm actually leaving Rouser now, oh, uh, right. yes, mm-hmm. to become an independent consultant. Uh, so that I can work more with agencies and and support them rather than work as a I suppose a competitor to them.
1: Right. Okay. I thought it was your own business. So it's somewhere you've been working then for a while.
0: Well, I was one of the co-founders originally, uh, and then yeah. the other people will probably carry on. It, it is merely one of those things, and I, I do hope that they are not offended by this. And it, it sounds because this does sound does sound a bit pretentious, I suppose, but my quote-unquote personal brand has become so much larger than that of Rouser uh, mm. that I've kind of outgrown them. Um, but also, I just I think it's the it's time to to move on and do other things, uh, not least because I am publishing a couple of things at the moment which are quite controversial, and I'd rather uh, that the. If there is any negative feedback, I'd rather that it fall on my head than than uh, those of, of of sort of the other people I work with.
1: Okay, so you're going to be providing the same sort of services, but through your own business, is that right?
0: Yes, uh, largely speaking, I am going to do more of what one might call strategic management and also uh, complexity management uh, over the last year or so my work has been primarily split into two so it's been global strategy for clients and then also complexity management um and um that is also a topic of uh, a book that I'm writing at the moment so it's it's you know i'm taking a, a slight step to the left so to speak compared to where, what i've done in the past but uh, i think it's the right move uh or at least i hope so and my wife really hopes so so we'll see
1: I must say, I was reading Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rummelt, and it's Mm -hmm. certainly very complex, the sort of scenarios he describes. Um, It's a great book with valuable nuggets, but not an easy read and not really easy to translate for small business, which is what 96% of businesses are micro-businesses. I noticed that he disparages the templated approach of focusing on vision, mission, and values. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to understand the considerations that you would take into account when setting business strategy and brand strategy, really.
0: Uh, well, I, I think it, there are two different things. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start there. Um, but whether one works with visioning and missioning, I think it's entirely up to the company. Now, me personally, I don't put too much stock into vision and mission. Um, if I, cause I recognize that it can work as a sort of an alignment tool, although there are different ways of achieving alignment in an organization. Mm-hmm. The problem is that a lot of the time, if you've studied anthropology one and one you know that the second you write down your values, they are forever lost. Mm. And that is a problem with um, those kinds of value statements or, you know, we're going to be this kind of company or that kind of company. It's great if you have that idea in mind, but you need to be open to, to changing it as you go and, and, and um, be a bit more flexible than perhaps some companies are. But again, visioning, missioning—if it works for you, then by all means, go ahead and do it. It's not something that I necessarily rely on, but you know, teach their own, I suppose.
1: Right. So it's really ultimately a way of setting your strategy. So, what would you recommend is a good way to approach business strategy?
0: Well, it it, it presupposes that strategy is. If, if I'm not sort of misinterpreting your question, mm-hmm. um, this is we're talking now about strategy as in deliberate strategy, because the thing is that they're broadly speaking two kinds of strategy. So you have deliberate strategy, which is the traditional approach whereby you would create these kinds of documents. And it, it would be, you know, if I were to boil it down to something, it would be effectively a plan. Right. And programming. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this. and going to do that. And so on and so forth. But then you have this thing called emergent strategy, and emergent strategy is effectively patterns and action over time. So Henry Mintzberg, for example, writes a fair bit about that. And any company in the real world, so to speak, the strategy will always be a mix of both because A deliberate strategy is never executed. The pieces will never fall into place just as you had uh, foreseen. It just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. But of course, at the same time, you can't have a fully emergent strategy because you need some sort of semblance of of structure. So uh, if I were to work with an organization, typically if I work with a startup or a small company, I would essentially start with what Peter Drucker might call the concept of business, which basically is, but what is this company about? Uh, Where do we want to go? And and just the basics, you know, do we sell car tires or do we sell, you know, rubber shoes or confectionery, whatever it is. And then off of that, you basically build your various strategies. And and you have this thing called, uh, well, what we call, I I created this concept with a former colleague called Gary Rivers, uh, this thing called the strategy hierarchy. So basically, the strategy hierarchy is a meta strategy uh, it's a strategy for strategies it's basically how various strategies within the organization will work with one another so to your point about <clears throat> brand strategy brand strategy is an interesting one because it sort of fits somewhere in between business strategy and marketing strategy but it can sort of move around a bit whereas your marketing strategy typically will be subservient to your business strategy and the further down you get in this hierarchy you know all the way down into you know let's call it campaign strategy the more explicit it will be and the more um more programming there will be probably but again you need to create some sort of scaffolding early on so you need to define that and that again how you do that is entirely up to you but i would create some sort of formal uh document and and keep it simple and keep it short uh one of the problems that we see with clients especially small clients is that they create strategy documents that are you know 50 11 different powerpoint slides and no one even reads half half of it which kind of defeats the purpose of it so yeah anyway so that's that's where i'll start
1: Okay, so you have a hierarchy of all Mm -hmm. the different strategies that are going to be relevant to the business. So maybe IT strategy is in there, intellectual property strategy, Mm -hmm. whatever is going to be some key strategies for the business. Is that right? Or is there a templated approach where you would cover
0: (coughs) No, I think it's more of a a way of thinking about things. So typically at the top, you would find a corporate strategy because you can have many businesses within the same corporation. Mm. Then beneath that, uh, you have your business strategy and then everything else will fall into place beneath that. Mm. Uh, Your IP strategy, for example, will, of course... We'll have certain parts that are defined early on in the business strategy, um, whatever it might be uh, that the IP in question is. But then, of course, you're going to have emergent parts of that as well because you do discover things along the way and innovation is you know, notoriously complex and so on and so forth. So sometimes you need to take something from one piece of the hierarchy and put it somewhere else. And the emergent strategy... The traditional view is is sort of from the the top to the bottom, right? That's the way that the communication goes and that's the the way the hierarchy goes. The the emergent bit is basically the opposite. So that goes from the bottom up into the top. And to take a a very simple example of that, so let's say that you're a salesperson, right? And that most people would consider to be tactical. You're quote unquote on the proverbial floor. Now, let's say that you have your targets and you have your markets and so on and so forth. But then one day you get this idea of maybe actually I'm going to go after that market. right? Mm -hmm. And going into that market actually turns out to be quite successful. Now, that's a tactical uh, decision that you've taken. It might be that all your colleagues, all the other salespeople in the organization notice this and follow suit. And then that's successful. All of a sudden, the organization as a whole has moved into a new market. Now, that's strategic right? Mm-hmm. So that would be an example of an emergent aspect or emergent strategy that that sort of takes something that is tackled, moves it up the, the quote unquote hierarchy. And you have to allow those things to happen as well. If you just have your, your very narrow, this is the way we're going to do things and never go outside of that. Then, you know, the problem with that is that it has a, a very nasty habit of, of catastrophically breaking if you can't foresee everything and something comes out of left field. So again, Create this, the hierarchy. Uh, various bits will fit into you know very various parts of the of uh, the hierarchy depending on what kind of company you are, and then be open to allowing things to emerge. And if you do that, you're going to be well on your way, I'd say.
1: Sure. So you're allowing things to emerge as market conditions are developed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Um, so absolutely. So one of the things that uh, just to very briefly explain this whole thing about complexity. So. In layman verbiage, so to speak, complexity tends to be interpreted as, in lack of better terms, a higher state of complicatedness, right? Mm -hmm. If something is really difficult to grasp, we say, oh, that's very complex. But that's not what complexity is at all. Complexity is something altogether different. So in nature, you have three kinds of systems. You have ordered systems. Basically, if we do A, it will lead to B. Uh, ordered systems can be either obvious again a will lead to b it will lead to b every single time or they can be complicated so doing a will lead to b c or d but it will lead to b c or d every single time in an ordered system there's no new information if you zoom out right so the whole is equal to the sum of all the parts then you have chaotic systems Up is down, there are no linear causalities or causalities to speak of, it's literally chaos, right? That luckily doesn't happen to a lot of organizations. But then we get to this thing called complexity and complex adaptive systems. Now, in complex adaptive systems, doing A will lead to all kinds of things. And we can never know beforehand what's gonna happen. If we zoom out in a complex system, we are gonna find new kinds of behavior, new information, right? A very uh, simple explanation of this or example of this would be an ant. So, the behavior of an ant is quite predictable. But if we extrapolate that behavior onto that of a colony, it doesn't work like that because the colony in and of itself has its own behavior, right? But conversely, you cannot take the behavior of a colony and then reduce it down into the behavior of a single ant. Now, human beings are, of course, a lot more complex than ants. So, human systems are a lot more complex. And colonies. What this means is that the traditional sort of view of, of how markets work and the way that we do strategy is basically one of order. We think that if we just do this one thing, A, then it will lead to B, or maybe it'll lead to C or D, but it'll lead to one of those things. Anyone who's worked in practice knows that that's not how things go, right? You have your plan, you try to execute it, and then all kinds of stuff happens. COVID, for example, so when you work with complexity, you need to work with it in a slightly different way. And that's when you get the emergent stuff. You need to run parallel experiments. You need to be open to learning things. And again, any organization will need a mix of both the, the deliberate stuff, the traditional stuff, and the emergent stuff, the, the sort of complex stuff. And if we can do that, you know, we're better off.
1: To go back to trying to actually identify what to go after, what not to go after, you know, mm-hmm. how would you approach that?
0: So what are we discussing here? Is it a, a new startup? It's a small company, large company.
1: Say an early stage business that wants to take itself to the next level.
0: It's understood mm-hmm. the market.
1: Are there questions you would help them to ask? How would you go about <clears throat> helping them? You
0: know? Well, in a, in a complex system, and this is... Uh, both are sort of a blessing and a curse, I suppose, if you're a strategist. You have to start by defining where you are. Mm-hmm. Typically, traditionally, this will be called a diagnostics phase, right? Sure. And we've all done this. But the problem is that a certain uh, certain techniques that we have been using historically, for example, root cause analysis, such as the five whys, that does not work because you cannot reduce a complex system. Remember what I said about the colony and the ant. Mm-hmm. So we need to use different techniques. But the first thing you need to establish is where are we now? And then speak. I would speak to, to the founder, the owner, the board, whatever it might be, and try to get a sense of, okay, so what's the the overall concept of the business? What is the overall sort of direction that we want to go in? If you're a small company, some small companies, new companies, they want to grow. They want to grow fast. Other companies want to be profitable. Some companies are just looking to essentially build a solid foundation upon which they can later build whatever it is that needs to be built. So again, the first thing you need to do is you need to define the context in which you're going to act, the company's specific context. And then off of that, you try to figure out, okay, does that mean we need to work with a new kind of IP strategy? Does this mean we need to do some product innovation? Is the marketing something we need to work on? And so on and so forth. But the point is that if you're working with markets and markets are complex, everything is context-specific. There Mm -hmm. are no context-universal or context-free rules. In other words, going into a small company, you just have to define, okay, so what is this company about? Where does it want to go? What are the strengths and weaknesses of this organization? And how can I take that as a strategist and build towards whatever it is that they're striving towards? The essence of strategy really is not one of sacrifice. It's the move from equiprobability. In other words, it's to improve the odds of a certain outcome, never to guarantee it, that'll be placebo strategy, but to improve the odds of a certain outcome. And that's your job as a strategist. You just need to figure out, okay, so are we going this way or are we going that way and why? So that will be where you would start.
1: Okay, so when you're considering changing markets and what business mm-hmm. you're really in, you're essentially thinking business strategy, aren't you? It's not a brand strategy issue. I'm trying no. to separate the two completely.
0: Yes, uh, that would be a business strategic or possibly marketing strategic question. Right. Brand strategy for me is is not to do with um, what market to go after, although I can see that it you know some people will probably see that it' see that as such given that within brand strategy, you couldn't find, for example, your brand um, hierarchies and things like that and your portfolios, and, and you might cater certain products to certain markets or certain kinds of customers and so on. Uh, in my view, or my world, that's more to do with business strategy, um, personally. But again, it's, it's, as you, I'm not, I used to be very snobby about what people called things. Mm-hmm. These days, I'm not, as long as everyone agrees within the organization what we mean. Sure. Uh, then it, I think it's fair game.
1: What about positioning? When you're thinking positioning, is it? Uh, do you think that's mainly a brand issue, or a business?
0: <clears throat> so positioning in in my uh, world, so to speak, uh, is it's it's either one or two things. Now you can either have competitive positioning. Then we we are firmly in the realm of someone like Michael Porter, in which basically we try to figure out what uh, products we're going to use uh, or sell to. What customers and what markets? Then we are going to tr- see if we can't um, differentiate within that. Now, typically, that's not how markets work. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the problem is that a lot of that stuff is based on wh- how markets looked 150 years ago. Because if you go back and you sort of look what Porter, or rather you look at who Porter built his his work upon, or whose work he built his work upon you realize that you can sort of track it way back almost to the industrial revolution. And although it will be very nice to be able to sort of delineate your competitors on a piece of paper, the problem is that the rest of the world won't really care about that. So even if you're working, I mean, the most the cl- most classic example of, of uh, positioning and segmentation and those things would be, well, I'm going to be this kind of company and I'm only going to sell my kind of product in my city, for example, just locally. Well, the problem is that with the global globalization, you're still competing against companies from the other side of the world, because of course you know they can sell um, online and, and whatever else. So again, positioning, uh, competitive positioning. If you want to do that, sure do that, but take it with a with a grain of salt. Now, then we get into the other bit of positioning, which is what I call perceptive positioning, which is the traditional marketing. Uh, positioning. Mm-hmm. Problem with that is that it presupposes that the, or rather, your customers will think of certain things when they think of you. We know that's not true, uh, based off of the work of, of you know Byron Sharp and others. Rather, they tend to have category generic uh, views in their in their heads. Having said that, I do realize that positioning can actually be quite valuable. Um, from a sort of efficiency standpoint, and this sound, maybe maybe it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but my point is that if we define these are the things we're going to stand for, you know, because typically that's perceptive positioning, we're, we want to be this kind of brand, right? It can actually cut meeting times because people don't have to have meetings in which we're going to discuss, okay, so do we need to be happy for this campaign or are we sad or are we this or are we that? Uh, it can also be a lot easier to brief agencies, for example, if you just go, well, our positioning is this, 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 and the CP that we want to cover is that or whatever else. And then lastly, I think I think the positioning can have a point if you have um, juniors working for you. So uh, if you bring someone in who's fresh out of university or whatever it might be, it's a lot easier for them typically, and, and I am talking about marketers here, Um to just go, okay, so I need to create a campaign with these three things in mind, this perceptive positioning in mind. That's a lot easier than just telling them, okay, so here's how brands grow one and two, and here are a couple other things, and oh yeah, by the way, this is the complexity stuff and come back to me in five years' time. Competitive positioning, again, it can be something that I sort of take with a, with a grain of salt as a sort of a document just to you know create the, the essence of the company, that's fine. Perceptive positioning as a tool, that's fine, but consider a tackle tool more so than a strategic one.
1: Well, Seth Godin distinguishes between differentiation and positioning because he says mm. positioning is a service you do to the customer. It enables them to kind of label you and know what box to put you in. Whereas differentiation is trying to say that you're different to everyone else and you know, that's a sort of different exercise. I wonder what you think of separating the two, positioning and differentiation.
0: I, I think there are two different things. Uh, so mm-hmm. I am with him on that. I think, unfortunately, Seth Godin has gone off the rails a bit recently, okay. but I think that's a fair point. Um, differentiation, yes. Uh, you know, he it, it, his blog uh, over the last couple of years is uh, – I can't really take him seriously. But anyway – But my point is that uh, I think that's fine and fair enough. The problem is that uh, companies aren't differentiated. We know that, right? Uh, The Mm -hmm. other thing is that this idea of of people putting you into specific boxes, again, that's not what people do. Rather, they tend to put you in the same box as everyone else within the category. Um, So although he he is, you know at least half correct in theory. It's not necessarily how companies work in practice, at least based on on recent research.
1: Okay. So when you're presumably the business is running and set up and then they need a brand strategy, what mm-hmm. would they need to think about that's kind of unique to brand?
0: Well, again, the first thing you need to try to figure out is what do we mean by brand within the organization? Because brand can mean all kinds of things. It can be the product, it can be the visual identity, it can be, you know, everything and then some. Uh, Start with that. And then if we are looking for a brand strategy uh, for an existing company, what we're usually talking about is defining distinctive brand assets, um, whether that's your logos, uh, your, you know, jingles website like colors whatever it might be and those things are going to be consistent over time so we just need to sort of break that down and have it on paper and build towards that with some sort of uh continuity uh, apart from that everything is going to be context specific it depends on okay so what what's the task that we're trying to do here or rather what's it you know the job we're trying to to do, uh, what problem are we trying to solve with this brand strategy? And so, on. and also, of course, what's what already exists? Are we going in with a carte blanche, or and do a complete rebrand of the organization? Are we looking to build upon what is sort of already been built, um, and so on and so forth? So, again, you're looking at context-specific things.
1: Well, often designers seem to say they need to do brand strategy whenever somebody wants branding or rebranding. Um, so, I just wonder what exactly that means um, how it's going to differ from whatever strategy the business has really I mean sometimes they talk about brand personality which I'm not sure that that actually means anything Uh, you know so if they're not going to be looking at that it seems a lot of the questions I've read in books that designers might take into account are very, very broad ones, which go to the heart of who are we, what are we all about, um, you know, as a starting point before deciding a, a visual identity. So those that's really my what mm. I'm getting at. What sort of questions would you ask to help the organisation decide what its brand strategy is going to be even? And also, most people don't understand what brand is. They think it's a logo or something. So there's an educational element involved.
0: Yes. Again, the first question you need to ask is, what do we mean by brand? Um, and then you define that. The problem I have with designers who go in and usually they have their, quote, unquote, big idea. Um, And then they need to, then they're trying to reshape the entire organization and the image of their big idea. It's just, it, it doesn't really work that well in practice. And of course as well, if we are talking about distinctiveness in the sense of just building through continuity and, and, you know, being easily recognized, then we can't change our visual identity, identity, you know, every half year, two years, whatever it might be that, Those things take time to build. But, of course, if you are a a sort of visual artist or or designer, then you're going to see the same logo every day, day out and day in. You're going to get bored with it and then you need to change it. The problem, of course, is that, you know, your customers are maybe going to see it one second, you know, for every, every two, three months or whatever it might be. So there needs to be consistency there. That's a really good
1: point. People get very bored with their own branding and want want to change, I think, quite often when they want to rebrand.
0: Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true from my experience.
1: Um, do you help people with, to brief designers with, for their brand or how, you know, what sort of work do you do?
0: Uh, I, I occasionally help clients brief agencies but it it's more to do with um campaign work and and, uh, Mm. advertising campaigns rather than uh, graphical yeah Yeah, Yeah. graphical stuff i i tend to work mainly with with large global companies and they have most of that stuff in-house anyway and a complete rebranding for a global organization is a huge project and then some um And if I'm being completely blunt and honest, those kinds of of gigs tend to go to creative agencies anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, For small companies, it's the same thing. I think that if you want to define your visual identity, if you want to work with a designer, again, it's a matter of you need to find the things that you're comfortable with and like because it's going to be there for a long time. Um, You know, if you're McDonald's, for example, if you're in a city and this is, something that that rory Sutherland likes to point out if you're in a city and you know you have no idea what the look, what the best local restaurants are um the food variance from from great to you know essentially food poisoning uh is is quite dramatic and you see the golden arches you know at least what you know is if i go to mcdonald's i won't get the best meal in the world but probably i won't get food poisoning Mm. and rory's point is that mcdonald's is largely successful because they're very good at not being very bad. Now, I would argue that that's true, but it's also true for essentially all their competitors. His point basically is that brands act as heuristics. And the thing is, of course, that if McDonald's were to change the the golden arches all the time because some designer found them boring, then you would not recognize McDonald's in that new city that you're in. So rec- recognizability, if you know, if you want to put it in those terms, is really important for brands. You need to be easily recognized, and if we change stuff all the time, then we're not going to be that. I, and I fully appreciate because I've had conversations with designers working for clients that they get bored, but the problem is that their consumers they don't get bored because they don't think about the brand all the time. You know, we mm-hmm. do.
1: Well, Byron Sharp really drives home the importance of distinctiveness. How mm-hmm. much has your approach changed towards brand strategy since he published his work?
0: Uh, Byron has been quite important to me uh, in general, but also his. I hate to use the term right-hand man because he's a man in his own right and then some, but but he, he, John Doss, who also works for the EBI, has been very helpful. In every gig I've done since, in every project that I've run or every client I've worked with, the patterns that he discusses, I've seen them. The thing about all the other stuff, it's very hit and miss. And sometimes, you know, you find the things that the positioning people or traditional people talk about and sometimes you don't, and usually you don't. Whereas the EBI stuff, EBI being the Urban Big institute Institute uh, for mm-hmm. which Byron works, um, you just—it's just based on evidence. It's not based on opinion. It's just based on evidence, and you see it all the time, um, whether you're running brand trackers or clients or whatever it might be. So it is one of those things where uh, it has changed my view a lot, but also for the better. Uh, as a side note, and though this is not something that Byron necessarily talks about. I'm not even sure he's aware of this, but um, it, the EBI stuff works a lot better with market complexity than the traditional stuff does because it basically looks at emergent patterns such as you know, negative binomial distribution which can be summarized in every company will have a few customers who are going to buy them a lot and a lot of customers who are going to buy them a little. And that's a, another one of those patterns that you see with every company that you work with. It's, it's absolutely insane how consistent it is. Um, so if you're a marketer you haven't read how brands grow, first of all, don't think of it as opinion. It's based on evidence. You can, you know, scrutinize that evidence. You know, I know that you as well as a uh, or have a, a background in, in, in legal work. But you just you look at what's the value of the evidence, and then you can make your own conclusions off of that. Um, So, you know, you need to read how brands grow and then you take that and you apply it into your own business and then you see, okay, does it hold up for us or not? Now, from my experience, again, it holds up every single time, but maybe it doesn't for you. Who knows? The point is, you just you, you look at the evidence, does it fit what I do? And then you work accordingly. What you don't want to do is read someone who says, well, Google did this. Therefore, you small brand who sells gravel should do the same because it's you're looking at completely different contexts it's like comparing apples to oranges
1: well i see a lot of problems actually in the whole branding market especially around naming where people mm-hmm. think they need to describe you know a product as closely as possible to get to saying what it does without necessarily describing it Yes. Instead of just giving it a name. And, you know, if you're trying to be distinctive, you have to stand out. And the name Mm -hmm. is so important. But I gather marketers are not trained in naming, which is probably why there are all these problems.
0: Yes. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think a lot of naming tends to go with trends and, and if we're honest, halo effects. So for example, when Google really hit its stride and, and became famous, and all of a sudden you'd see you know, every company would be something double vowel something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a lot of imitation going on. Uh, but it is, to your point, uh, naming is one of those things that, that people either don't take seriously or take too seriously, if you know what I mean. It's either we're going to call it you know, something generic and we don't care or it's, well, actually this first letter represents this ancient Greek God that blah, 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 blah. And no consumer ever is going to make that distinction. Mm. So it's, it's, it's one of those things. Again, you need to find some sort of middle ground and, and um, you know, a catchy yeah. name, a catchy name can become a distinctive brand asset as well. Which
1: is, yeah. You know, I, I've, so. I was here listening to Byron Sharp actually pointing mm-hmm. out that McDonald's is a Scottish name. Of Mm. an American burger joint. It doesn't really matter what the name is once you've got a name, as long as it's not really going to hold you back. A name is a name and it identifies the business. That's the primary objective of it.
0: Yes, absolutely true. So, I mean, in McDonald's case, what they probably shouldn't have done, or though, you know, who knows what would happen. But if they were, would have just called it Hamburger Incorporated. Who knows whether it had worked or not in terms yeah. of just the the power of the name. Um, yeah, I'm and sure then, it wouldn't have. Yeah, if they had but, a
1: descriptive name like yeah. Google if it was called Search Engine.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. and and you know and then but similarly if they had called it you know something with seven x's and five y's and three q's then people wouldn't have recognized it anyway cuz they mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to spell it and that's also one of those things that I'm I'm sure I would love to hear your your view on this but it's something that I would I would imagine that that one takes into account these days is uh, you know looking at your naming uh, from a sort of search engine optimization standpoint is it easy enough to spell can people actually write it down if mm-hmm. it's too difficult to spell then people won't necessarily be able to find it online and so on and so forth I mean what's your experience from in that
1: yeah it's absolutely key I I'm not very much in favor of using numbers instead of say four people put a four anything like that which is going to confuse people as to how to spell it how to find you Mm. isn't really going to serve the brand very much
0: no, I mean, it's it's one of Byron's perpetual points is that you need to be easy to remember and easy to buy or easy to think of and easy yeah. to buy. And that very much plays into that, uh, I would say.
1: Yeah, easy to spell. And if your own personal name is very difficult, then I would say don't use your personal name for the business. So,
0: No, that's very true. I mean, on a personal uh, note, it's, it's why I go by JP internationally, because my first name is Yuan, which is quite difficult to pronounce for people who don't speak Swedish. So it's a lot easier for people to say JP. Uh, and wow. because I do a lot of keynote speaking internationally, then, you know, it's, uh, they get the pronunciation correct. Same with mm-hmm. my wife's name, although it's a something that you learn quite quickly is there's, there's one rule to, to a successful marriage and that's happy wife, happy life. Uh, so, you know, even if her name was difficult to spell, I'd probably go with it anyway if it made her happy. But but Castellan is quite easy to spell and it's quite straightforward and quite easy to pronounce. And so, you know, that works in my favour, I suppose.
1: Yeah. So you're Swedish by background, are you?
0: Yes. Yes. Born and raised And are here. you
1: located there? Do you live there? Uh,
0: um, yes. Uh, you know, I've moved about a bit. Uh, but now, of course, with COVID, I can't really travel the way that I used to. Typically i work with a couple of, of big Swedish brands too, and global brands, but, but most of my work is internationally. Uh, so I do travel a fair bit. And then, as I said, uh, I do a lot of uh, keynote speaking. So I, I travel to conferences and mm. speak about whatever's on my mind typically. So you are
1: essentially focused on helping big, complex organizations to sort out their. By- branding brand hi- hierarchies
0: and- yeah well yes i, I do uh, a fair bit of quote-unquote traditional global strategy as well uh actually defining the strategy and building it uh and it, that's also one of those things that one needs to keep in mind is that every strategy within the strategy hierarchy tends to have a f- specific functionality so the global strategy for example we know that all the regions that we try to control, or at least get, you know, in some form of semblance of of an order, um, they are going to be coming up uh, across all kinds of of problems that are unique to them, right? So there's going to be emergent stuff. But the point of global strategy is effectively regional steering. So that is one of those things where we are going to do a a quote-unquote traditional strategy, and then within that, we're going to allow certain things, but we're basically trying to create alignment. And we are aware that some things may not be theoretically optimal, but they are practically sort of necessary. So we're going to do that. Um, but no, yeah, I, I do global strategy a lot. And then, as I said, a lot of strategic management, which is more in the business strategic realm of things, I suppose. And then, yeah, again, a, a lot of complexity management. And complexity management is... Perhaps it's not something that that small brands can, you know, in any shape or form avoid, but typically they have more pressing matters than going into, you know, how to create diversity of thought within management teams and those kinds of things, which I, I do a fair bit of work in.
1: Great. Okay. Well, thanks very much, JP, for coming on the podcast. Just one final question. What's your book going to be about?
0: Unfortunately, I can't say. Uh, right. I've, I've, I've because, and I'll explain why. So, uh, we've written in the past uh, every year something called the, the Rouser Manifesto. And it was oh, yes, started out, yeah. Out. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it started out with me and Gary uh, essentially putting our thoughts into writing. And then we published it and it became very popular very quickly, which was uh, quite fun for us. And now it's used primarily, as, I think, as upskilling um, for agencies. I know it's on the curriculum. Um, mm-hmm in certain universities as well. But anyway, and this year it's going to be called the Castle Manifesto. And it is uh, about, it's basically a polemic against traditional strategic doctrine. And I present all the, I talk about all the problems with exactly the kind of things we've been discussing in this podcast. Um, but I do not present the solution and the book will contain the solution, which is why I can't really say what the solution is going to be just uh-huh. yet. <laughs> You'll have to buy the book to find out. <laughs> Um, but it's it's looking very good. I am very excited about it. And I've been asked to write a book for years and years. And now it feels like the time is right. And and um, so me and Gary are writing it. And it's looking to be very, very good. So fingers crossed.
1: Oh, I'll look out for it. Great. Mm. Well, thank you very much then.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: I'd love it if you would sign up to the Brandtune newsletter at brandtune.com newsletter and access the seven costly mistakes to avoid when branding or rebranding. The link is in the show notes. My guest next week is Daniel Greenberg, an intellectual property attorney who specializes in domain names and online brand enforcement. He is the founder of Lex Synergy, a global domain management.